This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 5, Episode 10. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, brought to you by Excess Sites. Today is Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, as of the recording of this episode. And I'm your humble host, Riley Bowman. And today I have a special guest, Matt Little, with me as well. We'll bring him on officially here momentarily, let him do a little hello, hello to everybody. Uh, but I want to get right into the meat of today's episode. Uh, and before doing that, we'll give a quick sponsor message here. This episode is sponsored and brought to you by the 2022 Guardian Conference. It'll be our second annual conference in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in September of this year. It's actually September 16th through the 18th. And we're going to have a fantastic training weekend. And Matt Little will be one of our instructors at that event, along with a bunch of other top-notch, world-class instructors as well. So, folks, you're going to want to check out the Guardian Conference website. That is guardianconference.com. And get signed up today. We're under early bird pricing at the current time. That will So, in other words, the price of the conference will go up in the future. And to get the best pricing, you want to be a member of Guardian Nation. Our Guardian Nation members get access to the best price of the conference. It's basically 250 bucks off of the normal ticket price. So take advantage of that by making sure you are a member of the nation today at guardiannation.com. And again, the website for the conference is guardianconference.com. So sign up, take advantage of the early bird pricing, and we look forward to seeing you all in September we had a wonderful training event this last year. We had a good crowd of folks that showed up. We anticipate it being bigger and better than ever, uh, which is something to say, uh, being only the second year. But uh, as of right now, ticket sales are trending well. And so I'll also say that, yes, tickets are available now. Early bird pricing available now. Is it possible tickets sell out? It is possible. So don't delay. Hope to see you there. So now let's get into it. Matt. Little, uh, Green Beret, former SWAT cop, yep. long career doing the shooty shooty stuff and take down bad guys stuff. Uh, so you've been on the podcast now a couple of times. Uh, so yeah, folks, folks should always a good time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so folks should be familiar with you at least. And if they're not, they can go back. And I know I didn't look up the other episode, but I know one episode we did was called uh, something like EDC Mindset, and that one was episode 477, back when we, before we broke things up into seasons now. So season one, episode 477. That's, that's a long season. That's, that's <laughs> Longest season ever. <laughs> so uh, if you want to go check out uh, that, that episode, and there was one other one we did that was a little before that, like 468 or four something. So I just wanted folks to know where they could find your previous episodes. Uh, and that was another good one as well. Um, but this one, we're here today to talk about three types of drills for developing skill. And this could apply to pistol skill or rifle skill, or frankly, probably any type of skill development. I think you've hit the nail on the head with this approach because I've done a lot of thinking 
about this this concept of yours, and it it, it works. And so, purpose of today's episode is to break down what those three types of of drills are, and how we utilize those in our training and practice sessions, so we can maximize our skill development. So, where do you want to start? Um, your show. Where would you like me to start? Want to kind of, I mean, give the general concept, or <laughs> well, uh, you know. Right? Before we started the show in the green room, we we had a, a pretty interesting chat, just the two of us going there. I think that a lot of real, really relevant information there as far as kind of how you um, arrived at where you are. But why don't we just start by identifying what the three those three types of drills are? Uh, so we've got uh, uh, experimentation drills, yep, and we've got isolation drills, and then we've got combination drills. And we put it all together and it, you know, there's, and there's times along the way where we want to, you know, design some kind of test, if you will, or evaluation that we prove to ourselves whether what we did worked or not. And obviously it should be working. Uh, and I am pretty confident in giving folks the promise or guarantee that if you follow what we're going to outline today, that you will see improvement in your skill development. So, Experimentation drills again, isolation drills, combination drills. Um, there you go. We've we laid them out there. So let's break it all down and talk about what those different uh, subsets are. So, and and kind of how this came about, like we were talking about before the podcast started, was in my own training, right? Trying to to break through to new levels myself. And I realized that when it came to shooting, I was really only doing one kind of mindset in my drills. I was isolating a particular skill, you know, whether the draw or the reload or, you know, splits, transitions, whatever. And I was pushing on that particular skill, trying to get better at that one element, right? And that's absolutely vital. But the problem is that when it's time to apply skills together, you know, string different skills together, especially under stress, you can't really perform at the same level as you can when you're pushing on something in isolation. Right. Especially because we tend to forget that in isolation, you know, we'll remember the really blazing run that was fantastic. We won't remember the other five that were, you know, off the rails. Right. We'll think that our skill level is that blazing run, which really it's not. So I kind of got, I was trying to break through to a new level in my shooting and I kind of got stuck on that push. Right. And I knew I needed to develop more consistency, more consistent, reliable performance on demand. And at the time, my training partner for USPSA for shooting matches was a guy named Les Pepperoni. Les Kismartoni is his real name. Les Pepperoni is what he goes by on the internet. Um, really good grandmaster level shooter, phenomenal guy, very, very intelligent. And he's got this drill he came up with that he calls Calvin Ball, named after the game from the Calvin and Hobbes strip, right? Yeah. And the whole purpose of this drill is simply to build consistency on demand not to build any individual element to a new level. I started doing the drill with them and I realized that what we were doing was we were working on the ability to combine the tasks themselves, right? So unlike an isolation drill, we weren't trying to push any particular element through to a new level. We were trying to bring up our performance on demand to where it was as close as possible to that isolated level and build that consistent on-demand performance under stress, right? 
So I realized when I was looking at this, that it, this is like sorely lacking in a lot of people's training. And that a lot of things we do that we tend to treat like an isolation drill really aren't. They really should be done like a combination drill with this kind of mindset, right? Things like we were talking about it before the we went live. We were talking about El Presidente, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's a really famous drill that most people know if they're pistol shooters. But most people, when they shoot that, they're just blazing, like barely hanging on the rails, treating it like it's isolation work, when really the way to be consistent and put up good performances whenever you do that drill or to treat it more like you're combining the tasks. Like everything should be about that 90 to 95% gear mm-hmm. where you can make few mistakes, but you're as close as possible to your best performance. And so these two elements, I started to work a lot in my training where I would isolate something then I would combine it. And then the match or, you know, the qual at work or whatever was then the test, you know, and for some people, the test might be the real event. That's the other reason I don't usually call the test a drill because the test might be the actual thing. Right. Yeah. And then you take the data from the test and you go back and you do isolation and you, you know, build it up again, see where you're, see where you were lacking and try to build up those elements. Then you work on it in combination and build consistency. Then you test it again. So for a while, those were the elements I was kind of, using to differentiate my mindset when I was training, you know, how to approach a particular drill. And then I realized that there was one that was still lacking and that's experimentation. And I think this is, this is really a big thing for like tactical shooters because law enforcement, military, even, you know, CCW holders who take a lot of, you know, the more tactical shooting classes tend to treat technique as dogma. Like they'll look at someone's technique and try to imitate how it looks. And that's the way they were taught. And they don't want to experiment. And I was guilty of this too. They don't want to experiment because they don't want to, they don't want to have a detour or a blind alley or take a wrong turn in their training. Right. But the truth is that we're all physically and psychologically different. So even though the principles of sound technique are universal, you have to adapt them for yourself. And I think, uh, what we were talking about before we went live is the example. There's a famous drill by Ben Steger called doubles, right? And it's really primarily an exercise in grip, grip pressures and shapes and learning to run the recoil in a gun. But it's a drill that doesn't have a criteria that's pass or fail apart from simply learning, learning how to make it work for you. So the category I came up with to describe that sort of drill was experimentation. And the example I use in class a lot is that if you look at the top competitive shooters, no one's grip looks exactly like anyone else's grip. You know, Robert Vogel's grip looks very different than Ben Stager's grip, looks different than J.J. Ricasa's grip, right? So what Different than your grip, you know, with your... uh with your orangutan hands yeah, there. My, my thumbs that don't oppose. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, I, I have flippers. I could swim through air. <laughs> so, but the point is that you have to figure out the principles for the grip and figure out how to make them work for you, right? How to fit your hands, your body, your brain, and make it work for you. And what I figured out pretty rapidly was that not being afraid to experiment 
didn't slow your progress. It wasn't that you were taking, you know, blind turns and making mistakes that slowed you down. It actually accelerated my progress because I was able to figure out kind of the underpinnings, the why of things and what made them work. And it, it was a huge gain in performance once I realized that. So then I started breaking them up into experimentation work, you know, experimentation drills, isolation drills, combination drills. And then the final part is the test. And you take the data from the test and you go back and you do the cycle again, right? So yeah. that's kind of the, the overview anyway. That's sort of like the evolution that you just gave us uh, and how you arrived at where you're at. And again, I, I you go through this in a very logical fashion in your pistol skill development course that you teach through Graybeard Actual. And of course, I had the opportunity to go through that uh with you in portland last year actually about a about a year ago now yeah almost, uh, almost a year exactly ago. uh which was a good time and uh it it really works your your approach to this so i, I wanted to t- touch on a couple of things that you mentioned just to, you know as you kind of were giving us this evolution of these of these uh skill development drills uh, there's a couple things that you hit on that I, th- I think as we discuss these will will help start to explain why this process works. And and I'm actually going to start first. There was there was something you said as you were talking about um, combination drills. So I think it's really important that we we hit on this a little bit more in depth uh, as to you know what combination drills are and what some of the limitations of combination drills are. And you gave a really good example. You mentioned the El Presidente, which is a very classic drill. Uh, Most people are familiar with it. It's been around a long time, and it's a great standard, you know, to measure one's performance in that regard because it's been around for so long. We have a lot of data backing it up that, you know, that you can look at, you can shoot El Pres and you literally go to, the USPSA classifier, you know, numbers and plug that in and be like, oh, well, that would have been an A-class run, you know, and like, okay, now I know I stack up against the world's best shooters is essentially a 80% shooter, let's say. So um, that, that, that has relevant feedback for you as a shooter to kind of know where you're at and you can continually come back to that and and see you know measure your growth but what's some of the limitations of a combination drill like el presidente and the truth of the matter is there's a lot going on there right so like break break down el pres for us like what what's what are all the different relevant pieces or skills uh involved in shooting el pres well i mean think about it this way like so and it's not even just individual techniques really if you think about it right so we'll start off with the draw. So it's a turning draw, right? Yep. So you've got a footwork component. You've got a hand speed component. You've got the index for the draw, right? Then you've got the splits and transitions on the three targets, you know, and kind of the classic standard. We attribute this to the Blake drill a lot, but I know that Cooper used to say this about the El Presidente, that it should sound like six shots fired at the exact same pace, not three sets of two, right? Yep. So you're getting your splits and transitions close. And then, you know, the gold standard on the reload is the reload should be the same as your draw. 
right? So then you've got the reload, then you've got the same splits and transitions again. You've got the index on the reload. You know, there, there's all these little components that are that are kind of playing into that, right? Um, and if you look at how that differs from the isolation work, like isolation work, you can really break it down to where it's not even just, like say you're working on your draw, right? So usually when I'm doing isolation stuff, I break it down even further. It's like I'm working on one element of that skill at a time. So on the draw, it might be the quality of the grip with my firing hand, right? You know, just, just that one element, thinking about that. Or like lately, I changed where my trigger finger contacts the trigger just a little bit to make it a little more optimal. You know, playing around with that. So a lot of times for you, I'm, that's got to be like the third distal joint or something, right? Actually, it's it's not not with the twenty eleven. The twenty eleven is right at the tip. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. with a Glock, I bury it like it goes all the way in. Sure, sure. So, like, there's a famous shooting instructor um, who talks about how you can only work in either speed or accuracy at one time. Yep. Um, I kind of agree and I kind of disagree. Right. I think you can only work on one thing at a time, but it's not necessarily just speed or accuracy. It's, it's anything. It's, it's the grip, right? So if your grip is better, you're faster and more accurate. Like say you're working on build drills, but using build drills to work on your support hand grip. Because if my support hand grip is correct, then my splits will be faster and everything will be in the A zone. So are you working on speed or accuracy there? You're really getting a gain in both because you're working on that support hand grip. So I think psychologically he's correct. You have to have one particular focus on an isolation drill. I don't think it's as broad as it has to be either speed or accuracy. I think it's it's something, right? Mm-hmm. So going back to the draw, so you're working on your draw, um, which I typically I don't really do a whole lot of that in live fire in isolation. I like I validate it in live fire, but really you can spend all your effort on the draw and dry fire, right? So right now what I'm working on for the draw is really just where my trigger finger contacts the trigger when I prep the trigger. Like that's mm. what I'm focusing on the last week or so on my draw. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to put the pause, the, the brakes on there just a little bit, just, just, just to point out to listeners and viewers that like, do you see the level of detail that Matt's going into here? You know, like this is, <laughs> when it, when you're talking about isolation, which is what you're talking about right now, like yeah. this is the level of detail a person can break it down into. Uh, it's kind of like uh, like a like a, a briquette reload, right? Where you're just doing part of a reload, but even that you can break down further. You can you can just practice getting your index on a mag in the pouch, right? And not even bringing it out of the pouch and towards the mag well, you know, or you can start at, with your hand on the mag at the pouch and just practice getting to the mag well. I mean, the, you can break down any one of these things into very, very small, finite pieces. And so these that's just examples, I guess, of, of isolation work, isolation drills. Yeah, like here's a good example that would really, I think, be valuable to a lot of listeners, right? So reloads, talking about reloads. Yeah. Everyone knows that if they have the magazine in their hand where their index finger 
is along the front of the magazine, just below where that first round is, right? Everybody knows that's yep. optimal. If they have it yep. like that, then the reload goes smooth. So how do people usually wind up with that magazine in their hand despite their best efforts, since you got a mag there handy? Where it's the wrong angle, you know what I'm talking about? Where like they don't have the finger all the way up and the, mm -hmm. the base plate of the magazine is at the base of the index finger and you wind up with something that looks like this yeah. as opposed to this. Yeah. Right? Let's, let's say something like this as opposed exactly. to like you're saying. And then the angles are off and it's hard to get the reload yep. smooth, right? Yep. So if you memorize where on your hand, exactly where on your hand the base plate of the magazine hits and you have that correct grip, you can literally, in your dry fire, just drive that hand of the magazine a thousand times, making sure you hit that right spot, that one particular spot. And that'll have a huge benefit to your reloads, both consistency and speed, because you're getting the proper index on the magazine. Am I making sense? Yep. So, I mean, you, yeah, you can definitely... It, it doesn't really matter your skill level, even more beginning shooters. Once you figure out these cues, these physical cues to make your technique right, you can isolate that cue and make it correct, make that performance correct, grind that in to where that becomes automatic. And that will help you so much in the long run. I wish I had done that when I was a newer shooter because it would have helped my performance improvements happen so much earlier in my career. Uh, I agree. You know, this is, this is stuff that I didn't figure out either until I was pretty far down the path. And then you, you start figuring some of this out, isolating parts of techniques or drills or exercises or whatever. And, and like th this honestly is where the, the gains come from, uh, from what I've seen when you start, breaking it down into smaller and smaller chunks and you focus all of your time and energy. And it's not like it has to be a ton of time either. You know, you could spend just two, three minutes in a 30 minute practice session working on a very isolated portion of something and it, it will pay dividends. And of course you want to keep coming back to that again and again and again over time. Um, Cause it's not just about the, quantity of time you spend on something but also the the frequency and and how regular you know that you work on certain things um all, all those are all factors and how well you develop a skill in something and also retain it over time um okay so again to kind of come back to like where we started a little bit with say the el prez uh, my, my whole point here would be that um there's there's I think we made the point that there's so many different components that add it all up equate an El Presidente. Uh, and, and one of the things there is that, well, one thing I see, Matt, is I, th I see some shooters that will shoot, say, a drill like an El Presidente. And like, let's say they run it five times. And like one time that, you know, it's, it's, seven seconds and the next time it's nine seconds and the next time it's 6.5 seconds and it's like okay you know like oh and, and not that's not even counting hits you know one of those times is eight points down another time it's 12 points down another time it's two points down you know so it's there, there's a lot going on there and it can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes 
for a shooter to like truly walk away and be like, what did I learn? What did I get from that? Because there's all these different variables that ultimately add up to a certain number of points together with a certain overall time. Now we can look at shot timer data and be like, well, what was my draw on this one? Well, it was a 1.5 and it should have been a, a one, you know, or 0.95 or whatever. Okay. So that, that at least in part explains partly why this overall time was greater than the other run I had. Uh, what was my reload? Oh, it was two seconds instead of 1.5 or 1.25. I fumbled that, you know? So like, but even within that, it's like, well, why did I miss the draw? What, 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 what went wrong there? And we need to be able to break that down and ask the, ask the difficult questions and, and try to come to a, a point of understanding of where the failure points are occurring. And then that's what also then feeds our ability to work on those things that are, that are holding us back. Yeah. And I think, so I got some thoughts on this, if you don't mind me kind of going Absolutely. off of attention there, right? Sure. So I really think that like, and first off, like the combination stuff, right? When you're doing a combination drill, I don't think you should do more than five runs at a time yeah. or do something else. You can come back to it, but no more than five in a row, right? Because then, then you're starting to, rather than work on that ability to combine the tasks, you're starting to groove in that particular pattern. Yep. And the reason why, I mean, yeah, you can groove in that pattern if you want. You know, like say you're getting ready for a fast coin or whatever, and you want to you want to groove in that pattern. Yes, but in general, to be better shooters, we're not looking at having a rote solution for one particular problem. We want to build a better toolbox so we can handle all the potential problems. Am I making sense? Mm -hmm. So rather than do it that way, like build the tools in isolation and then apply them to a problem and see how your toolbox holds up, whether you've got the right tools in your toolbox for that. And the other thing I like about doing the combination work that I like to do is don't really score each individual run. Look at the patterns. So in other words, like say I'm going to run El Prez three times, right? So run El Prez three times, look at my times, you know, are my times roughly the same or there, if there was a really an outlier, there's a difference between a mistake and a pattern, right? Over time, we should make fewer and fewer mistakes and they should be smaller. So that's part of the data we want, but the mistakes are separate from the pattern. If I go up and I look, say I've run it three times, right? So there should be what, 12 hits per target. Am I right? <laughs> I did it in my yeah. head. Uh, well, for an El Prez, you're going to have... Uh, you have four per. Four. Four, four per. per. So one yeah. of three times, you get 12. Yep. Right. right. Yep, yep, exactly. Yep. So I look at that, and it's not just about like, okay, what's my percentage of alphas versus Charlies? It's where are the Charlies and why are they there? Right? Mm -hmm. Am I stringing shots along because I'm dragging rather than being precise when I look at a point in the target? Um, am I stringing them onto the target because I'm getting on the, the trigger a little bit too soon, right? Am I going low left on my second shot because I don't really have my support hand grip dialed in, right? Like look at the patterns and see what I'm doing that's an error everywhere, not just a mistake I made. Yeah. Yep. So, this is uh, 
and real quick, yeah, go ahead. Mind, can I, mm-hmm. I want to address something in the comments real quick. Yep. Um, statistically speaking, there is hardly ever a need for a reload. However, there are sometimes needs for reloads, and it's like a reserve parachute. You're not probably going to need it, but if you need it, you're really going to need it. So, yeah, no, I, I appreciate you uh, hitting on that uh, comment from Kerr on Facebook. He was just so people that are listening only will have the context here. Uh, he was just asking how realistic is there going to be a need for a reload? We were breaking down into very fine detail uh, some of the components of a reload. And and I, I think, and I, I went ahead and typed up a reply to Kurt here, just saying like, just, just take the principles of what we're discussing here and apply that to whatever's important for your individual context. If, uh, you know, draw is very important to you, which draw is pretty important to just about anybody that carries or shoots a gun because even if you're a competition shooter uh draw is super important if you're a police officer that's super important you got to be able to get your gun out of your holster at times under you know short time frames or short periods of time and under stress concealed carrier very similar so just take the principles of what we're discussing here and any anything can be broken down into smaller bits and chunks and pieces isolated and worked on in, in in practice sessions so, um, you, what you were just kind of hitting on there uh, a, a second ago, uh, Matt was you, you're you were talking about looking at you know these patterns, okay, and and part of that is that's that's a natural segue point back into this isolation piece. Um, but also into experimentation as well, which I know is kind of how, and, and why you you ended up where you did with having experimentation and isolation and combination drills, um, because that's partly where I think you discover these patterns and can work specifically on the things that result in those in those patterns as you described them that you might see in your combination drills. And so, but before we go deeper into the experimentation and isolation parts of this. I wanted to also hit on something you mentioned earlier that uh, I, I clued in on a little bit. I think that would be worthwhile for our audience to to ponder on is you talked about when performing or shooting uh, a combination drill that, you know, this is where we want all the individual components of that drill to be done at like 90 to 95% of our theoretical maximum output. Right. And so I, I think that there's a, there's a distinction there between a combination drill and how much we give it in terms of effort or how much we push as opposed to maybe some of the things we do in experimentation or isolation. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So like kind of the way I've been thinking about this is I'm not going to get faster without pushing to be faster. Right. Yeah. And I'm not going to reach those new levels of skill without giving myself permission to fail because you're going to make a lot of mistakes when you're pushing to get to a new level. Um, I think anybody who's ever become truly fast at shooting a pistol has thrown magazines across the room and dry fire. They've, they've, you know, hurt their hands on reloads. They've, you know, they've done all kinds of things where it just went totally off the rails, right? And obviously, you have to be safe. You know, both dry and live fire, you have to have safety. But that's kind of a sidebar. Yeah. 
you have to allow yourself to have those failures, right? Because that's where the growth occurs. That's where you get better at it. But when I need to apply my skill, right, I need to be able to find kind of a mental transmission, a gear shift in my head where I'm going at the maximum output where I can be certain that I will not make a mistake that's going to harm harm me, like either in self-defense, you know, make me lose the confrontation or in a match, rack up too many penalties and lose the match. Or, you know, I'm trying out for the SWAT team and, and I blow one too many rounds on the claw and I don't make the SWAT team. Like, you know, whatever that is, right, whatever failure is, we don't want to fail. We want to go at our absolute best where we won't make those mistakes. And we've got to learn to kind of do that gear shift in our head. And it, honestly, I like right now, I've kind of got – my dog is coming in for attention. Yeah. <laughs> um, right now, I kind of think of it as I've got kind of a few different gears I'm trying to really fine-tune, right? So I've got the pushing gear, which is like 110%. I mean, for me, it just is. It's, yeah. um, I don't know if that's the most efficient way to practice, but that's just kind of the way my personality works. Like I, I tend to work at something really difficult until I get it right. And I don't care how many times I fail. So that's the pushing gear, right? That's not the gear you want to be in, in the real world or in a match or anything where the outcome matters. Then I've got a gear for like shooting a match. Um, shooting a match, you don't want to be too conservative because then you're going to, you're going to be hanging back too much. Right. So that's about 95%. Yep. And then now the cat's coming in and getting in with the dog. for attention. <laughs> so 95% for a match. Right. But that's still a little bit too on the edge for the real world. You know, you're yes. still kind of, you're kind of hanging it out there a little bit too much. So then I've got, you know, my, my real world application gear for lack of a better, better term. Right. Um, and that's like, 85, maybe 90% of the most. So a little more conservative, a little more, a little less of a chance of making a mistake because the, um, the price for a mistake is a lot higher than in a match. Yep. So, yeah, the, uh, the criticality, if you will, of like whatever the, uh, potential downsides or consequences of the situation might be is definitely going to play a role in, in what gear we operate in. And that's, that's really important to understand. Uh, we don't want to run a hundred percent for everything we do. So uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent point. So I, I think of this or approach this uh, very similarly, I would say, I, I think for us to develop skill, in other words, developing skill is pushing ourselves into territory. We haven't been yet. Right. And to do that, I do think we have to push ourselves beyond where we're comfortable. I mean, we do that in pretty much any performance based activity. If you want to build muscle, well, you have to push yourself beyond where you're currently comfortable or you just you're not going to get there. Right. If you want to uh, 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 get your one mile or, or your 5K or your 10K or your marathon time, you know, whatever that is down, we have to train in a manner that pushes you beyond what you're comfortable with currently. So, so I agree with you on the, in practice and in training, I have to, there's a place to push for that 110%, which is going to be oftentimes beyond a failure point, or at least it's going to induce failures more frequently than normal because 
that's where we actually do the, that's the development phase as I see it. Um, the uh, common phrase I throw out there in a lot of my classes and, and in various contexts is, is Yoda's famous words of, of do or do not, there is no try. My follow-up to that is there is a place and a time for trying. And that place and time is in that training and and skill building practice phase. So we have to we have to try. We have to put forth effort when we are practicing and training. But when it's time to simply perform, then we then that's when that do or do not comes into play. Like we, we either do or we don't. If if I'm in a gunfight tomorrow, like my objective is come out the other side, the victor of that gunfight. And if I don't, then I, I'm lo- like the alternative is losing and that's not acceptable for me. So it, th- but that's a pure performance metric of you either do or you don't. It's pass, it's go, it's pass, it's fail. But when, and when that's, and when that is what's um, hanging on the line, then trying is going to only serve to get me in trouble. Right. In other words, that's when we have officers or concealed carriers running out, you know, getting out beyond their headlights, right, in responding to a deadly threat, shooting faster than what they currently are capable of doing, uh, running their gun in a way that they're just not capable of running it. And I I think kind of a related note that's kind of key to this Hmm. is that, like, I tell people a lot that when you're applying your shooting, it should be running like a program in the background of your computer. In other words, it's not the window that's open. The window that's open is you making the conscious tactical decisions, right? The shooting piece itself should just be running automatically. And the only way to get that is by working that combination piece, right? To get to where you're just allowing, you're kind of allowing the software to run. Because when you're working on something in isolation, you are intentionally consciously focusing on a piece of it, right? And trying to push that piece consciously. You've got to learn to like kind of disconnect that and just kind of let it run. It's kind of like Frank Proctor says, let it do, right? Just let that piece happen. And you've got to work on that in training because you don't want to wait until the real event to try to do that for the first time because it's not going to work out right. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah, Frank's uh, phrase, just, yeah, let it do is, is, is good. I, I frequently say something along the lines of just do the thing, you know, yeah. just do it. Like don't overthink it. Don't overtry it. Uh, don't complicate it. Like you have whatever the objective is, just, just do it. Just do the thing. Um, cool. Excellent. So we, we, we've hit on isolation and, combination pretty well i think we may still continue to explore those concepts some but i'd like to hit on experimentation some more and this is one that i think is overlooked by a lot of folks in skill development but is super important uh it's been really important for me like just as a simple example um a question i've gotten from folks i mean i'm I'm known pretty well as being able to shoot a bill drill pretty effectively. Yeah, I, I would say so. It, it's kind of a thing for me. I, yeah. I, I, I like them to, to a fault. 
Um, you and Isaac have those happy fingers, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, like the simple answer to someone that asked me, like, how did you get to where you could shoot a build drill so fast? And, and the simple answer is I just did it really fast and like, just kept working at, it. you know, like I just, I, I had a lot of failure, yeah. you know, and I would just, I wonder how fast I can rip off six shots, you know, and you're like, well, that was cool and fun, but like two, two alpha and two Charlie and two Delta, or I, one of my shots missed the target completely or whatever it was, but I just, I just had to, and a lot of it was experimentation of just pushing myself well beyond where I probably should have been. And then gradually starting to plug the pieces in of like, okay, I tried this and that did not work. Now let's try this. Yeah. Okay. How's that go? Ooh, that's, that's a little bit better. And so it was a lot of experimentation, which in today's world is, is harder to do because of ammo availability and cost. I'll tell you, it would have been harder to experiment with build drills. Like I, 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 like I've done, uh, in today's current ammunition market but uh but it's kind of it, that's a simple answer is i just had to do it and experiment and try and expend a lot of rounds in the process it's like another one of the experimentation drills i do in my classes um is a walk back drill and a lot of people have done varieties of walk back drills when they shoot right but i use this specifically to show soldiers and policemen that yeah come on <laughs> they, she's corralling the menagerie yes. and getting all the animals out of the room. Um, the only one that's not in here is the lizard. <laughs> right. So, it kind of like what happens a lot is tactical shooters tend to default to the most precise technique of aiming and the most careful technique of pressing the trigger. And I understand why that happens, right? institutionally we're all taught that we're accountable for every round that fires and we can't have a miss. And those things are true, but that causes people to default to a technique that does not serve them well when faster shooting closer in is required. Right? So I use this to show people that there's, there's a spectrum of things and you have to understand what you can get away with for a particular shot. on both pressing the trigger and on seeing the sights. And it's that experimentation because you won't know until you experiment with it. You won't know until you try. Can I make a seven round A zone hit without seeing any sights at all? Right? Like you have to figure that out. You have to see what you need to see, what you need to do to make that shot. And unless you play around with it, you'll never figure that out. Yeah. Um, my apologies. I uh, stepped away for a second there to kick on the furnace because, uh, my office is right next to the uh, utility room, and my wife informed me it's very cold upstairs. <laughs> so we'll just have to deal with uh, the potential of furnace noise in the background. Uh, yeah, um, you mentioned uh, doubles. Uh, ben Stager's famous for that drill, uh, and you mentioned some some other examples related to that that uh, I think is relevant. Um, and here's the thing with with experimentation, we can also get into the nitty gritty, you know, on a detail level uh, with just experimenting and trying different things. And it, it, I was wondering if you could touch a little bit more on, like, to use doubles as an example. Now, first of all, for our audience that may not be familiar, if you could describe for us what the doubles drill is, 
And then what are some of the things in a more detailed manner that you're looking for as you're working on doubles? So we'll take it at seven yards because it changes a bit when you get further out, right? But at right. seven yards, the idea is you get a good sight picture, good enough for an A zone hit at seven yards. And then you pull the trigger twice as fast as you can pull the trigger. And you learn how to make those two shots be where they're in a fist size group, right? That's the goal. And it really is like, a, for me at least, it's primarily an exercise in figuring out what my grip needs to be to make those sights track exactly back to the same place so that, that second round goes right on top of the first. And it, it's really interesting how many variables there are for that, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got how much pressure with your support hand then you've got exactly where the fingers are going to meet on the other hand, how far they wrap around, how far back they are, where the heels of the hand contact, right? Then do I have pressure moving in from the sides? Am I camming up like Vogel does, Mm -hmm. right? You've got all these different variables to play around with in the grip. And unless you try each one out for yourself, you won't know what works best for you, right? And everybody's different. Like a good example I use is I cam in on my grip. Like So in other words, let me find the camera. There we go. So in other words, I'm pressing this way with my grip. But I do that because if you see the scars, I have nerve damage from an injury from the army, right? So that's my way of compensating for the nerve damage. And it's almost more of a cue for my strong hand because these fingers have the nerve damage than anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas Vogel does it because he's shooting a Glock, a lighter gun and he's got farm boy strength and he just crushes that gun by camming in. Right. Mm -hmm. Then, um, Juan Kim talks about pressure from the front and back and pressure from side to side. That's the cue that works for him. Right. You've got to figure out not just what the physical manifestation or proper technique is for you but what cue what coaching cue you need psychologically to make that grip happen for you you know and you've got to kind of internalize that and make it work for you and i mean literally you can spend you could spend 300 rounds of practice session on doubles for six months straight twice a week and still be learning still be figuring out little ways to fine-tune your grip and to make it better then once you do that now you've got to take that grip into your isolation training and make sure you're hitting the proper grip, right? So like if I, if I figured out something about my grip in experimentation working doubles, for my isolation work, I might do build drills and focus on just having that grip that I've identified as working for me every time I do the build drill, right? Because if I have the grip correct, then the build drill will have a nice tight grip too, Yeah. right? Or, um, or my strict build drill is good for that too, because if you don't, you're not going to get, you're not going to get close to two and a half seconds on that strict build drill without a good solid grip. You're just not, not to have everything inside that white circle. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I think I think the point here is is that we could do this with anything. We in terms of experimentation, and that's how I view. Uh, doubles in the manner is what you've described there is it's a lot of its experimentation because you want to be trying all these different ideas, uh, techniques, 
um, little tweaks to your already existing technique. I mean, it's it's remarkable what sometimes happens when if I just take my my normal standard grip and make just the slightest changes in terms of well, apply a little more pressure in this position, you know, in this spot on the on the gun, you know, like you know, changing, changing my pinky pressure as opposed to uh, my support hand, as opposed to uh, my index or middle fingers, or I mean, it's just, you could get so granular in the detail into the weeds on this. And sometimes it's really surprising. You're like, Whoa, that made a difference. I did not expect other times you don't detect much change. And you know, those are the things I go, well, all right probably doesn't matter so much what I do with respect to that. But this other thing made a huge difference. And let's keep running with that and seeing if that continues to develop and show consistency. Um, so to, like you just said, you can spend a lot of rounds and, and a lot of time in a practice session doing something as simple as as doubles and, and spending a lot of that time just experimenting. And here's the thing. <clears throat> um, from what I've observed with myself and with other shooters, Matt, when we're doing experimentation drills, there's huge opportunity for learning to occur, but that learning comes at a cost. And the cost is that it takes time and resources. And and in the context of shooting, a lot of that means the expenditure of ammo. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, I relate this to like going back in history to the early days of Rob Latham and Brian Enos, as they came up in the shooting sports together, uh, those two dudes spent a lot of time experimenting. You, if you read Brian Enos's book, he talks on that. If you listen to some some things that Rob Latham has said over the years and on various podcasts and things, like they spent a lot of time experimenting, yeah, and developing techniques. And learning what worked and what didn't work as well and stuff like that. And there's a lot of things that we have to thank them for because of the experimentation they did. But in the process, they shot a lot of rounds to learn that information. And that was very costly, especially by today's standards. And so it's important to, to recognize that, that I think that experimentation has huge potential for return on investment. But it's going to be a more costly investment than if we um, than if we experiment less, frankly. But we just, you know, if, if instead I take a Bob Vogel at his word and say, "All right, Bob, I'm just going to do the thing that you do," well, I can probably get to where that'll be pretty effective and will work. But I'll learn less along the way, and I'll understand less about the why behind what he does for him that works so well. And I'll learn less about why it works or maybe why it doesn't work as well as it could for myself if I spent some time experimenting. But we got, I think, balance that that learning potential with, you know, our own situation, circumstances, needs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, you know, we we... Because, you know, if you're experimenting, there's going to be some things that you end up wasting time on. That's just the nature of it. And there's other things you're going to, you know, uh, figure out some some significant gains. It's like Thomas Edison trying to figure out the light bulb. Most of what he tried didn't work. Um, but eventually he figured it out in a big way that has changed all of our work, all of our lives. I, I think for myself, I found that I 
I've wasted less time than I thought I would. Cause I was very hesitant to experiment earlier on. Yeah. You know I mean, like I didn't want to, I wanted to get there now. Right. <laughs> if I just do what the guys that are there now are doing, I'll get there now was kind of, you know, what was going through my head. But once I kind of ponied up and realized that I should experiment with some different things. And maybe it's because I had a pretty good foundation built already. And actually I got a thought about that. I want to come back to but I found that it wasn't, it didn't take me that far off the path. Like mm -hmm. it, it, the learning I was getting, even from the things that didn't help, made me better. Right. But I do think, I mean, I, I'd been shooting a long time when I started competition, when I started trying to reverse engineer how to get better. So I, I don't know if that would have quite the same cost effectiveness for a newer shooter. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the sad, realities of, of working on your shooting is is like like I can work on doubles now in dry fire and it'll be productive right because I know how to replicate the issues from live fire in my dry fire yeah but I know that because I did it a lot in live fire yep and it's kind of one of the sad truths of shooting is that you can do a lot without live ammo but you need to do a lot of live ammo first to figure out the realities of it like your dry fire gets more and more effective the longer you You've been a shooter because you understand what actually happens when the gun goes off better. And yeah. it, there's just a certain amount of, I mean, the reality is you just have to expend a certain amount of rounds to get to a certain point. And I think everybody's got to figure out, they've got to do a needs analysis. You know, how good do I need to be? How good do I want to be? Mm -hmm. And then they've got to match that up with their level of commitment. How yep. much am I willing to put into this? And are my goals realistic for the amount of time and money and effort I want to put in? And that's like, that's their choice. I can't make that decision for anybody else, but nor should I. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and with respect to what I said a moment ago, I'm not trying to scare anybody away from doing experimentation work. All right. But uh, I, I think to you, the, to you, what you just said, the thought that came to my mind was there's, there's no need to go back to ground zero for most people, most shooters and try to completely reinvent, reinvent the will, right? Like we know generally the principles involved that work pretty well for most people. And so I think that's where it's relevant to pay attention to what, um, people with that have had success with whatever discipline it is that we're after. But if we're just purely talking shooting, we can look at some of the greats uh, in, in shooting in the shooting world and be like, okay, what are they doing? And what are some of the principles that are being applied there and start there, not trying to reinvent the wheel. And then from there, figure out what really works best for me by making small in incremental changes uh, as we as we go through this process of experimentation drills and then isolation drills and, and putting it all together in combination. Um, I think at this point, it's relevant to make another uh, connection, I guess, connecting thought here, at least as I see it. And, and I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well, Matt. Um, but I think that in today's world, especially with Instagram uh, influencers and, and show-offs, frankly, uh, that it it's become 
a popular idea that the drills are the training, right? Meaning that like a person will do nothing but your standard drills, let's say like uh, one shot draws, bill drills, El Prez, Mozambique, whatever it is, you know, take the popular flavor of the day and then just do that a bunch and a bunch and a bunch. And like that is the practice or the training session. But if you're really taking what we're talking about here today to heart with respect to experimentation and isolation drills, you know, and and I I think we're using the term drills pretty loosely there. Um, That's not what that's, that's not where the work occurs is in doing just a bunch of standard popular drills Right. I mean, I'd like to hear you kind of expand on that. I think that's irrelevant. Yeah. So I try to look, I try to look at shooting like an athletic coach, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is kind of how I like to think about it. And I I have to coach myself because I want to get better too. Right. And you've got to address everything with a plan, right? Like I think a lot of people, and I was guilty of this too, you know, like how many people do you know that like, say they want to get a fast coin. They want to go to a Langdon class and get a fast coin. They'll right. do nothing but shoot the fast drill for six months. Yep. That's not the best way to improve that. Right. It's just not, you want to work on the tools, the individual component skills in various ways. And then occasionally bring them all together and see how you're doing on a test. You know? Yeah. Or say it's um, well, Lord, I've been guilty of this too. Say you want to be a USPSA grandmaster, right? So all you do is go shoot classifiers. Yeah. No. <laughs> right. You know that's not the best way to be good at classifiers. The best way to be right. good at it is work on the component skills you need: the gun handling, the marksmanship, you know, the speed, all of those individual components, and then bring them together. I'm not saying don't yeah. ever practice a classifier. I'm not saying don't ever shoot the fast drill, right? But you've got to have the right elements in your training in the right proportion. Yeah. And the proportions are going to change based on how long you've been shooting, how advanced you are, where you're at in your current training cycle, right? So like you like to shoot major matches, which once I get my new hip, I'll be doing again, hopefully myself. Yeah. Um, What's your next major match? Uh, Colorado State Championship, Bighorn Classic. All right. What are the dates? Uh, April 20. I'll be shooting on April 22nd. Okay. So we're in February now. So you've got between now and the end of April to prepare for this major match. Yep. So like if it was me kind of with the way my training philosophy works now, at this point in my training, I would still be doing more isolation work than I would be doing combination work and no testing. Mm-hmm. As I get closer and closer to the match, those proportions are going to change to where I'm doing almost almost all combination work, trying to build that consistency on demand. And then as I get closer and closer to the match, I set up a stage and run a stage, you know, every couple of practice sessions where I get one chance at it, just like a match. Yeah. Right. So your your training is programmed to peak for that event. Right. Now, if you're a soldier you can do that and your training is programmed to peak for your next deployment or your next big school you're going to. 
For cops, it's a bit different because they have to pretty much always be ready. So their training proportions are a little less skewed one way or the other, right? And if you're a civilian, then if you're getting ready for a big training class, that might be your next event, right? But in general, you need kind of that constant preparedness too. Yeah. So you might have a little bit of a more even mix throughout your uh, entire training. It's a, it's, a, it's a maintenance of skill because you need to be yeah. ready to, to do, do whatever at any time. Right. <clears throat> Whereas if you're looking at it just as an athletic event, and no other considerations, you can afford to let that lapse for a while to build better isolated skills. Yeah. It makes that sense. are uh, more tuned for the specific thing that you're, you're trying to prepare for. Yeah. 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 Um, I think those are excellent thoughts. And, and, and I think what, what I'd like to actually ask you about uh because I think it's to kind of help bring this home full circle um, is let's, let's just take the, the fast drill or the fast test, the fundamentals, accuracy and speed test is, is what fast uh, the acronym uh, stands for. Um, <clears throat> and I'll describe what that, that drill is really quick too, for those that may not be familiar, but basically it was designed by Todd Lewis green. Uh, and now that torch is carried forward by Ernest Langdon of Langdon Tactical um, after uh, Todd's passing. But uh, uh, you have the fast drill, which is you draw and place uh, two rounds in a three by five head target or uh, it's a horizontal orientation. So you take a three by five card uh, horizontally placed, draw and place two rounds into that three by five card, perform a slide lock reload. Uh, so you want to set it up with two rounds in the gun, right? So two rounds in the head, slide lock reload, four rounds in the body, which is a eight-inch circle target. Uh, that's the fast test or fast drill. Six shots, pretty basic, honestly, as far as it's, it's you know, it's not a complicated thing. It's not a ton of rounds. It's not a high round count drill, but there is a lot going on there, uh, a lot of different individual skills or components that need to be done at a high level if you want to succeed at it. Now the, the, the standard, and this would be, I guess I'm going to give part of the answer to what I'm going to have you do, but the test, if we were testing ourselves on that would be, I show up to an earnest, an earnest Langdon class and I'm going to have the opportunity to actually shoot for the, for the coin. And that means I've got three chances where the first one I got to pass it and I got to do it a second time, right? So I got to I got to shoot the a successful fast drill in less than 5 seconds and I got to do it twice. That's a test. That's a pretty significant test. But breaking the fast drill down from the experimentation, isolation and combination phases how would you plan out um, using those different dr- types of drills to uh, to develop the skills necessary to successfully pass that test? So doubles set up two different ways for experimentation. Um, doubles on, I wouldn't even do the index card. I do a business card. Mm-hmm. Doubles on a business card at seven yards. Yeah. And then doubles on, maybe a four inch circle rather than the eight inch circle at seven yards. Right. 
use those to experiment with what I need to do to run the gun and get fast, you know, relatively fast. They don't have to be super fast. for the. I keep saying fast for the fast test, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The splits don't have to be extremely rapid for yep. the test, but they do have to be at a certain level. Yep. So figure out the grip from that. Isolation work, um, draw and fire two rounds to the business card in the headline. Make it a business card. Make it harder than the actual test, right? That's draw a form of overload. Rounds, draw and fire two rounds. Isolate that's a, that. That's a form of overload training. Yes. Push yourself beyond. Make it harder than it actually is. Yep. Yep. Then build drills to, say, a six-inch circle, right? To work on the splits for the second part, right? Isolate yep. that. Yep. Then I would do four aces, which is a pretty famous drill too, right? So two reload two, right? But do two reload two on those two reduced size targets. Do two reload two on the head targets, do two reload two on the six inch circle as opposed to the eight inch and work on it that way. And then as you get closer, start using the actual drill as a combination drill. You know, do it three to five times, see where you're lacking, see where you tend to make the most mistakes see any patterns and where your hits are going, then take that data and you can go back to either the experimentation or isolation drills we just did. And then as it gets close, you need to set up a mock test where it seems like it matters, right? So this is one of the few things social media is good for. Mm -hmm. Go live on social media and give yourself three, you know, three chances to get it twice and see if you make it or you don't. Let it all yeah. hang out there, right? Yeah. Um, do it with your your training partners, your shooting buddies, and have you know who buys dinner be on the line if you make it or not, right? Have something where it matters, yeah. And learn to do it under that stress, and then all that remains is doing it for real. Awesome! I think that was an excellent and yet still simplified uh, manner of uh, demonstrating how we could use all of these different types of drills to uh, work towards uh, a particular end goal. I was just thinking that just a, another idea for folks if they're wondering how to make a practice session more meaningful, uh, more critical. Uh, it's kind of an idea sort of like uh, what my buddy Charlie Perez has talked about where um, you could actually plan a range trip. Uh, now, for me, realize if I'm going to my outdoor range, it's an hour and a half one-way commitment. I don't have a, a better outdoor range that I can utilize for me personally, locally here that, that is less than that drive time wise kind of sucks. Um, I can make, I can simulate the stress of a true, um, test of sh shooting the, the fast test in front of Ernest Langdon and a whole class by saying, I'm going to go to the range this Friday or Saturday or whatever day it is. I'm going to go. And I do have all these other things I'd like to work on because I got to maximize the fact I'm driving an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back. But I could, I could take the approach of I'm going to go to the range and I'm going to shoot the fast test once. And if I pass it that first time, I get to go on to the next phase and I get to shoot it a second time. And if I get it that time too, then I'm released from my obligation and I can then work on the other stuff that I'd like to that day. Yeah. But if I fail, I pack it up and I drive home. 
Oh, and that's good. I like that, that that will make that so like that that'll simulate the stress in a big way. Yeah. <laughs> it makes right. it very meaningful. <laughs> yep. So, but but you can come up with your own way of do, of doing something similar, you know, whatever work cuz some of you like I know people that have a range in their backyard like, well, okay, that doesn't work, you know. So, you got to uh, come up with some other way that makes it uh, meaningful. I've uh, Charlie has talked about uh, like you can get actual money involved uh, and be like, Hey, uh, I'm going to shoot this thing twice. And if I get it uh, cool, if I don't uh, I'm, you know, for every time I fail, I'm giving my wife a hundred dollar bill or, you know, like whatever it is that, that makes it work for you. <clears throat> yeah. And no, I think that stuff is important because and that's why I know our audience for this is concealed carry people, right? But that's why I think competition is so vital to your development as a shooter. And I, I talk about this in my classes. You and I have talked about this before, but I've, I've been in gunfights. I've been in gunfights in the U S I've been in gunfights overseas, right? Not, I mean, that's, it's just a fact, right? Shooting a USPSA match is more stressful than a gunfight. <laughs> in my opinion, because everybody's watching. Everybody's going to critique how you do. The scores are on the internet. Anybody can look them up. You know, everything's out there for everyone to see. Um, a fight's a fight, and then it's over. This lives on on the internet forever, right? And that's just the way it is. And I think it's an excellent tool for learning to perform under stress and pressure. I really do. Yeah. I think, uh, matter of fact, Cooper, the guy that came up with the El Presidente and started Ipsic, said, uh, I believe it was, men will live and die for points. Competition is bloodless combat. And I think he was onto something there. I really do. That's an excellent quote. That's an excellent quote. Uh, yeah. And folks, you heard it here. I mean, and you've talked about something similar before on the podcast in previous episodes that I hope people really listen to that because coming from a guy like you that has been in gunfights, like you said, in a variety of contexts, uh, there's a lot of people out there that throw into question the validity of things like competition that, well, that's different. The stress is different. It's yeah. Nothing can truly prepare you for, you know, the real thing. And, and there's probably some truth to that as well. I don't know. Nothing is probably not not a fair statement either. But, um, but you got you got the you got some tactical guys that say don't ever shoot or bother with competition because it's meaningless and it might actually cause training scars. And you have other people that are on the other far end of the spectrum that say competition's where it's at and. Uh, you know, who cares about that tactical stuff? Um, I think you're a fascinating individual because of your breadth of experience uh, to uh, provide perspective that I think can bring both of those houses together and show um, where there's value on both the tactical and the competitive side. Yeah, and, and a match isn't a gunfight, right? Yeah. It's not meant to be. Yep. But... Everybody talks about training like you fight. I think 
you're looking at it the wrong way if that's your aphorism. I think you should be training for the fight, right? There's no MMA fighter that does nothing but spar full contact in their training. Right. There's no football team that does nothing but scrimmage, right? You have to develop the attributes and abilities and skills needed for the fight. And competition is a great way to do that. Then you layer on the tactics you've learned somewhere else. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good stuff, my man. Uh, Folks, I hope this has been helpful for you in learning about another approach. And I think a very uh, worthwhile approach to your training uh, so that you can look at your personal and individual goals um, and uh, take a structured approach to working towards those goals and utilizing these things in experimentation and isolation form, putting it in combination, right? And, uh, and then coming out the other side, you know, able to pass the test, whatever your t- personal test may be. Um, I don't know. What, what would your final thoughts or words be as we summarize and begin to wrap this up? If you care about being good at shooting for whatever reason, whatever your personal reasons are, approach it like an athlete would. Like, look at the building blocks, look at the skills, figure it out. Don't just – shooting is fun, but if you go to the range without a plan and just shoot a bunch of different things, then you don't have a roadmap to your destination, right? So figure it out, whether you use this framework or a different framework that works for you, and just have a plan and crush some goals, whatever they are. Yeah. Awesome. Good words, good advice. Folks, uh, again, this has been another fantastic interview with Matt Little of Graybeard Actual. Uh, Graybeardactual.com is Matt's website. Uh, We mentioned in the beginning episode about Matt teaching at the Guardian Conference this year in September. Uh, It's a great opportunity to come and be able to train with him and also with other equally awesome instructors uh, over a course of three days. We hope to see you there. Uh, guardianconference.com. Matt, what is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, anything you'd like to mention, throw out there uh, as we wrap this up? Well, let's see. We've got a, got a pretty full schedule this year. So go to the website, check it out. we got a calendar up of all the class offerings. Um, hopefully I can see some of you guys on the range. Yeah. Um, on social media, graybeard underscore actual is the handle for IG. Um, graybeard actual on Facebook. So you guys can follow me there. That's like I said, it's a full class schedule. So hopefully yeah. I can see some of the listeners on the range and we can have some fun. Absolutely. Uh, you, you're teaching classes all over uh, and your pistol skill development course specifically is, is pretty much is, is built around what we've been discussing today. Yep. Uh, so uh, it's a great opportunity to take that class. It's a two day class and you'll learn a lot from it. I promise. I know I did. So well, folks, uh, you know where to find him. You know where to find us. Uh, this has been another great episode, I I, I think. I, 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 The time flew by for me, Matt. So uh, that that's usually an indicator that we had a good time. So uh, thanks for uh, everybody here being a part of this, listening to this, supporting us, and making this possible, and uh, for uh, supporting Matt as well as, in, as well in his endeavors. So with that, we'll bid you adieu, good sir. 
And uh, until next time, folks, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care.